Welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book In My Father's House by Corey Tinboom, with permission of Light Trails Publishing and the Tinboom Foundation. And we are on Chapter 13, A Quiver Full at the Bayet. The quiet years of the early 1920s in our home were punctuated by the sound of Tanta Anna's fading alto voice, singing the great old hymns of the church. As the once vigorous body became weaker, she stayed in bed most of the time, memorizing verse after verse from her worn hymnal. She knew most of the songs slightly, but now learned all the words from the first to the last line. I've never had a time to memorize, she said, and it's such a joy. She knew that her time on earth was limited, but she seemed determined to enter heaven with a song on her lips. When a day in the shop had been particularly difficult or someone had come to our house burdened with a heavy sorrow, it was an encouragement to hear from the little bedroom upstairs the beautiful words, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught, Where'er I do, where'er I be, Still tis God's hand that leadeth me. After a short, severe illness, God led Tanta Anna to her new home in heaven. Father, Betsy, and I sat at the big oval table, once so crowded with all the tin booms, and talked about the past. It's a new life now, Corey, and we must remember the past, but live in the anticipation of the future. Who could be despondent around Father? His positive attitude enlivened the dullest day. I looked at the empty chair and began to dream a bit. Mother had always encouraged us in her dreams. I recall the time Betsy and I had gone to her with an idea we had. Mama, when we grow up, we want to help children of missionaries. So many of them can't stay with their parents on the mission field, and then they're sent back to Holland to live in those big places where missionary children have their home. We had recently visited one of those houses, and although the leaders were kind, we felt so sorry for the boys and girls who had to sacrifice because their parents were obeying God by serving in other countries. I remember how God brightened at the thought. She had just left the hospital after a minor operation and told us about a talk she had with the head nurse. My nurse had been a missionary for years, and when she heard that I had three daughters, she said, Mrs. Tinboom, I think you should keep one daughter at home, one should be a deaconess in our hospital, and one you should give to the missions. My eyes grew big at the thought. Which one was I to be? What was your answer, Mama? I told the nurse... I would not know if I could give a daughter of mine for the mission field. Mama explained the reason for her strong feelings. She continued her story. My own mother was in Indonesia when she was a little girl. Her parents lived there and both died on the same day. There were three small children left without parents. A black woman took them all to her home and cared for them for two years before they could find a ship with a captain who was willing to take three orphans to Holland on his ship without grown-ups to supervise them. The kind black people who kept my mother and her brother and sister were very good to them, but my mother's childhood was very primitive. If you wish to serve the Lord by educating missionary children, I believe it would be a very worthwhile pursuit, Corey. That story in my dream soon leaped into reality. The meanderings of my mind were interrupted by William's familiar voice downstairs. Is anybody home? He told us he had something important to tell us, so Betsy, Father, and I gathered in the parlor. William began by saying, As you know, I'm a board member of the Santigla Dutch East Indies Mission. Oh dear, 
Was William going to go to the mission field? But that wasn't it at all. His request, I admit, was a strange coincidence coming in that particular time. There are three children of missionaries, William continued, who need to have a home on a short notice. Their parents must leave for the mission field, and they're very clever children, two boys and a girl. Now we can find a home for the boy, but not for the girls. They all need to study, but there isn't much money. There was a familiar phrase in our house. There's a faith mission, William explained. When the finances are good, the parents can pay. And if there's nothing, then the foster parents must live by faith like the missionaries. I thought perhaps it could be something for you. We'll pray about it, William, Father replied, pulling on his beard as he did when he was deep in thought. William knew that he couldn't press Father into a decision before prayer. That was the way decisions were made in our family. However, after supper and prayer, I cleared the dishes from the table as Betsy poured milk into the steaming cups of coffee, and Father lit a cigar. One girl could sleep in Tante Bet's room, I suggested. So, you are already arranging the house, Father chuckled. If you two agree, I will not refuse. However, and Father paused, perhaps beginning to think of the foolishness of a man in his sixties with two unmarried daughters taking the responsibilities of raising young children. Let's not decide too quickly about this. The next day, the mission director visited us. Mr. Tim Boom, ladies, and he bowed gallantly at us. The board of the missions met last night and thanked the Lord that you are willing to take the two girls. Father smiled. Who told you that? Of course, if you have already thanked God, we cannot refuse. When can the children come that we may see them? Tomorrow. Betsy and I began to rearrange closets, prepare beds, plan meals before any of us had a chance to question our decision. It was quite clear to us that the Lord meant for us to take the girls, but we hadn't counted on the added surprise in the missionary package. The next day, three children came. Puck, a spirited little girl of 11, Hans, a 12-year-old with great intelligence, and Hardy, their 14-year-old brother. We loved them from the beginning, responding immediately to their bright minds and willingness to adapt to a new way of life. When they were small, they were educated in Indonesia, where their parents served on the mission field. But when they grew older, they were sent back to their home country to boarding school or to live with families. Naturally, the children preferred families to schools, so they were eager to please. We showed Puck and Hans their rooms, and they began to unpack their few belongings from the little cloth satchels they brought with them. Hardy stayed in the kitchen looking down at the floor. Come along, Hardy. It's time for us to leave, the mission director said. Sir, Hardy said softly, looking from his father to the director. Can't I stay in this house with the bearded old man? I had to say goodbye to Mom and Dad, and I don't want to say goodbye to Hans and Puck, too. Father said, of course you're staying, young man. You don't think I can run this household full of women all alone, can you? And then we were six. Our quiet, thin little story house was suddenly stretched its walls and echoing the activity of three children. The side door swung in and out like a pendulum on one of our clocks, and it was a very good sound. Father seemed to increase his productivity with all the chatter and singing going on around him. The entire tempo of our lives picked up. Betsy and I discussed the division of labor, and it was settled that she could take care of the clothing and food, and I would be responsible for sports and music. I could combine that with my club work. The first thing I did when the children came was to sell my bicycle. I decided to walk a great deal with them, and as long as we didn't have enough money for bicycles for everyone, I intended to train myself and the children to walk where they had to go. 
the Alpina Watch Company had sent us little red caps, the type worn by the Swiss shodlers, and I gave each one of the children one of these. The first time we all ventured out on a walk, the conductor of the streetcar saw us and said, Well, here comes Corey and her red cap club. We bobbed along the streets of Harlem and out to the dunes for our hikes, but it wasn't long before there were more red caps added to our club. Along comes Lessie. Just as we had the children of the watchmaker come to live with us after the First World War, we inherited another girl who had been promised a home in Holland and then had been rejected. Lessie was a missionary's daughter who was on a boat ready to sail from Indonesia to Holland when a telegram came from the uncle she was going to visit, saying she was not welcome. Her mother was so upset because Lessie needed the time in Holland to begin the training school for teachers, and all the arrangements had been made. The parents of Hans and Puck were at the ship bidding Lessie goodbye when the telegram arrived. Send her to the Bayer, they said. They always have room, and if they don't, they'll make it. Consequently, we received a letter announcing the arrival of Lessie within two days. There was no time to write our answer. In fact, there was no alternative. We have no room for more beds, Betsy said. Her precise nature of housekeeping was straining with the increasing crowded and cluttered conditions. However, she didn't complain. She moved things, rearranged furniture, and we made do. We can sleep in the tower, the place where the suitcases are kept, Hardy said. A plan was already forming in my mind. Noah will put two beds on top of each other in my room. I invented a type of bunk beds with our old bedsteads. When Lessie arrived, hurt because she had been refused by her one relative, she was welcomed by us with open arms. Within a short time, the Lord chose to send us two more girls. We experienced that with man there are impossible situations and circumstances, but with God all things are possible. Our red cap club added more caps, and we began to look like a troop of yodelers. All the girls went into training school for teachers, and Hardy went to another school, just for boys. Poor Hardy, he was surrounded by girls. I'm sure he must have felt overwhelmed at times. He began to disappear for several hours at a time. And one day, Betsy marched into the kitchen with a frown on her gentle face. Do you know what Hardy is doing? Oh dear, I began to imagine all sorts of evil things, none of which seemed to suit Hardy's basic good character. He's going to Charlie Chaplin movies, Betsy announced indignantly. To movies? You don't say. None of us had ever been to movies, but somehow I didn't hold as scandalous a view of this new invention as Betsy did. We didn't forbid Hardy from this pursuit, but we tried to make the activities for the children so attractive that they weren't too interested in such things. I love the physical activities with our foster children. When we walked together, we talked together, and it was more valuable than any lecture we might give. We had such great fun on our hikes. Once we walked with one of our clubs from Harlem to Amsterdam, which was a distance of about 10 miles. We carried our lunch and sang whenever our spirits began to droop a bit. My foster children were most enthusiastic. We had gymnastic lessons, too, although I wasn't a very good pupil myself. My feet never seemed to do what my mind instructed them. We all walked out on the gymnastic bars with a succession of teachers who taught their individual type of body movements. The German method taught a different style from the French, and both were contrary to the Swedish gymnastics. I learned to do a bird's nest on the bars, but I was certainly an awkward bird compared with my club girls. In the middle of the gymnastic lesson, I would blow my whistle and we would have a Bible lesson, which would last for from two to five minutes. The lessons were usually in the form of stories that the children could remember, 
stories which emphasized the Bible truth. The girls were in a training school for teachers, and the quick little Bible studies in story form came in very handy for them. One day they told me about a student in their class who cried a lot. Hans was especially concerned about her, and at supper time, while everyone was around the oval table, she brought up the subject. Remember me telling you about Meep, the girl in our class who cries a lot? Well, I talked to her today during recess and found out that she lives with a cousin. Her parents are in Belgium. She can't seem to eat. Anyhow, her cousin told her that she had to finish her meal before she could leave for school, so she was almost always late. She's miserable with her cousin and doesn't want to go back. Please, Tante Bessie, Tante Keys, take Meeps into our home, Puck said. She's really so sweet and so unhappy. We can sleep, too, in a bed. The next day, Bessie went to visit the cousin and his wife. They were good people but had very little insight about raising a teenager. They agreed that we should have Meeps in our home for a time. When Meeps arrived, Betsy gave a real welcome. Look, Meeps, no one here has to eat who doesn't want to. Here's the bread whenever you're hungry. You can help yourself and make a sandwich. Meeps soon became a happy, relaxed girl, full of humor and a good, normal appetite. With seven children in the house now, the Bayet was an active, noisy place. In the evenings, Father sat in the living room, surrounded by his second family, busily writing his weekly newspaper. He went about his work, oblivious to the din surrounding him, looking up occasionally to smile at one of the children. The girls were always in a hurry to get to one of their clubs or to do their studying. They tried to shorten the devotions at night, but Father, called Opa by the children, was aware of their methods. Puck said once, Opa, let's read Psalm 117 tonight. Well now, Puck. I just think I'll read Psalm 119. The visitor commented to Father that he was astonished at all the noise and laughter in our house. And Father said, Our children are such good kids. Why, they never quarrel and are always ready to help each other. They're just angels. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Psalm 124, 4-5 I sighed and went upstairs to talk to Puck, who had been sent to his room for the angelic way she had said, I hate Lessie. She was sitting on the corner of her bed, curled up in a defiant position children take when they know they're going to be punished. Puck, don't you know that Jesus says hatred is murder in God's eyes? He told us that we must love our enemies, I said. Well, I can't love Lessie. In Romans, Paul says, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. If you give room in your heart for the Holy Spirit, he will give you his love, a part of the fruit of the Spirit, and that love never fails. Puck looked up, a trace of tears in her eyes. But Tinty Keys, what must I do? Such hateful thoughts come in my heart. John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, nine, Jesus will cleanse your heart with his blood, and he will fill you with his love. Shall we go to him now and tell him everything? Puck relaxed. All the tension in her taut muscles left, and she lowered her head as we prayed together. Puck and Lessie became the greatest of friends. Years later, Puck was in a concentration camp in Indonesia, placed there by the Japanese during World War II. The guards were very cruel and she needed the Holy Spirit to give her love for her enemies. She was married then, and her husband Fritz was in a concentration camp in the Philippines. When she was released, she weighed only 79 pounds. 
Fritz survived the years of imprisonment and was an emaciated 106 pounds when he was freed. Puck told me after the war, I always thought that if I could come out alive, I wonder if my parents in Holland will have the strength to stand the hardship of the war, but I know that Opa and Tante Betsy and Tante Keys will be there. That gave me a feeling of security. When I was beaten, I thought of you and Opa and remembered what you had taught me about love for my enemies. Puck's parents were still alive when she came back after the war. Opa and Betsy were no longer there. But what they had taught Puck lasted. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Psalm 112.6 Although Betsy and I never married, we received such love from all of our children and were able to give them so much of ours. However, a house full of teenagers was not uncomplicated. There were many things to talk over with the Lord daily. Sometimes there was not much money, and when they needed new shoes, they had to wait until the finances were available. Cardboard and newspapers temporarily stuffed in the soles were frequent emergency measures. We shared our sorrows and joys with all of them, and when we sold an expensive clock or watch, I came to the living room, stood in the door, and made an impressive announcement. Ladies and two gentlemen present, I wish to inform all of you gathered for this important occasion that Mr. Hans de Hoven has just purchased the gold alpina and paid cash for it. Cheers and hurrahs! Now I can get my shoes and I my petticoat. When the situation was serious, we prayed about it and didn't forget afterwards to thank God together. We lived as a real family. Betsy was wonderful in contacting the parents and she wrote them every week. When one of the girls got a new dress, she took a snapshot and sent it to the parents together with a piece of material. Marique was the only girl who had difficulties in school. She was studying to be a kindergarten teacher and loved children, but they was terrified of examinations. Once she failed, and it was difficult to persuade her to go back the next time. She adored Opa, as all the children did. In the evening before the crucial day of the examination, he was writing his weekly paper and concentrating so intently that it was almost impossible to stir him, except with something very tempting. He laid down his pen when Puck brought in the tea. She had made cookies, and everyone had to pay attention to such a treat. I'm not going to the examination tomorrow, Marique stated. Why not, father asked, immensely concerned over one of his children. I failed again. Father smiled. Listen, Marique. You have done your best, and possibly you can't do it alone. But Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you think he will give you strength if you trust him? Paul had to go to examinations, Hardy remarked with the complete assurance of a teenage boy who knows all the answers. I think his questioning from Felix was a bit tougher than the exam for a kindergarten teacher, Leslie answered, pleased with her own self for making this comparison. We had been studying the book of Acts. Can you really pray for everything, even something as little as an examination, Marique asked with a renewed interest. Father leaned back in his chair, warming his hands with the steaming tea, relishing the chance to discuss the scripture. Paul says in Philippians 1.27 that whatever happens in your life, make sure that your everyday life is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you belong to the Lord, there's not one single thing you have to conquer in your own strength. The hairs of your head are numbered. Can anything be more trivial than that? But Opa, Puck said, yesterday I didn't learn French because I was busy making cookies. That was more fun than the dull old French. So this morning I prayed that I wouldn't be called on. But God didn't help me. I did get called on, and what a mess I made of the French words. 
I'm not surprised, Father chuckled. If you didn't learn, you can't expect the Lord to help you. Hardy added with a sudden burst of understanding which made me very pleased with him. I found that if I want to pray for something that is wrong, I simply can't. It was years later that I had to learn another lesson about prayer for something that was not 100% right. It was in 1945, shortly after the war, that I went to Switzerland. I had spoken there in many meetings, but I also visited my former watchmaker friends from whom I had learned my trade many years before. I bought some watches while I was there. In Holland, there is still a severe shortage of imported articles, and to buy Swiss watches was rather complicated. When I put my watches in my suitcase, I smiled because of the method we had learned in the time of the underground work when we saved Jewish people and hid articles in our luggage. Surely nobody would be able to find my three watches. Before I went to the train, I prayed the way I would always do when I started a trip. Lord, protect us against accidents. Bless the engineer of the train. Give him wisdom. Make us a blessing for our fellow travelers. And Lord, give us success in smuggling. In smug, I wanted to say, I'm smuggling my watches, but I couldn't. The moment I started to pray for it, I knew it was a sin. Smuggling to avoid paying money is the same as stealing. I didn't smuggle my watches, and I experienced again that prayer can be a discipline. As the girls grew older and discovered the boys were more than just a nuisance, it became an increasing challenge to answer their questions. The walks we had together brought a closeness and an ease of communication. In spite of our difference in age, usually we walked on Sunday afternoon since our week was filled with work and school. I remember when we walked from Harlan to the dunes near Zanvoort. The sun warm on our faces and the sand inviting us to sunbathe. We would frequently lie on our backs and talk about, well, just the things girls talk about. Tante Keys, were you ever engaged to be married? Tante Keys, do you long to have a husband? Do you find it difficult to be single? Once they started, the girls could ask questions as rapidly as a second hand could move in an accurate timepiece. You rascals, this is a very important subject to talk about. When you're beginning your lives as young women... I had no sadness or regret, only joy in telling the story of Karen. There was a time in my life when I expected to marry a boy who loved me and whom I loved. He was going to be a minister and was from a big family where several members were clergymen. They had the usual problems that ministers have with finances. His mother did not approve of our getting married. She wanted him to marry a rich girl. How I struggled with myself at that time when he introduced me to the wealthy girl he was going to marry. I had the feeling that my heart would never survive such a blow. What did you do, Tante Keys? I went to my room and talked it over with the Lord. From what I can remember, it was something like this. I want, Lord, to belong to you with my body, soul, and mind. I claim your victory, Lord Jesus, over that wound which is hurting me. Let your victory be demonstrated also in my sex life. I didn't quite analyze what I needed, but the joy is that with the Lord, It is not necessary to give him a clear diagnosis before he knows the cure. Did you have an immediate victory? No, there was still a battle, a rather severe. But then the Lord healed me and the pain didn't come back. The Lord gave and continues to give me a very happy life. I have the love of all of you and I love you. My life isn't dull at all. The best thing is that when Jesus restores such a loss, he gives a fulfillment that is a little bit of heaven. A peace that passes all understanding. Philippians 4.7 From our side, it is only necessary to surrender. After I had told this, Puck said, 
Now I understand more what Opa said yesterday. Our times are in his hands. He brings you safely home. It was the middle of May 1940. By that time, the children were all away in their different jobs or married. It was a time of fear and confusion in our land. Hitler and Goering had ordered a heavy bombing of Rotterdam, and we were bewildered. The Dutch experienced the first large-scale airborne attack in the history of warfare. We were completely unprepared for such an ordeal. On the morning of May 14, 1940, a German staff officer crossed the bridge at Rotterdam with a white flag in his hand and demanded the surrender of the city. He warned that unless it was capitulated, it would be bombed. While surrender negotiations were actually underway, the bombs appeared and wiped out the heart of our great city. Over 800 persons, mostly civilians, were massacred. Several thousand were wounded and 78,000 left homeless. Rotterdam surrendered and then the Dutch armed forces did the same. It was then that our dear Queen Wilhelmina and the government members fled to London. The German juggernaut was on the move. An army of tanks larger in size and concentration and striking ability than any tank force yet mobilized started through the Ardennes forest from the German frontier. We read that these tanks were stretched three columns wide for 300 miles behind the Rhine and broke through the French army's headed for the English Channel. Our Hans was married by then and had two children and another one on the way. Her husband was a teacher and they lived in Rotterdam during the terrible bombardment. They fled to a small suburb in Rotterdam where their third child was born in a cellar. For a year they lived in that cellar which formed a bomb shelter. Hans told me in later years that over and over again she repeated to her children, Opa taught us, when Jesus takes your hand, he keeps you tight. And when Jesus keeps you tight, he leads you through your whole life. And when Jesus leads you through your life, he brings you safely home. And the next chapter is 14, Even the Least of Them. I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am, but it is a blessing to read this. Uh, I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.